Kwame Alexander with the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. Have a great day. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... I am really trying to push writers to be loud and and ask for more from their publisher. Doesn't mean you're going to get it. I know for a fact I've done it and have, have been ignored. But I think we got to stop being so nice and polite and treating this industry like they did us a favor by letting us in and really step to our publishers and say, hey, treat me like you think I'm going to succeed. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Samantha Fisher. Welcome back to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com. You can find us on all the socials at thegbbpodcast. You can find us wherever you get podcasts to download from whatever podcast application, website, wherever you like to go for your podcasts, you can probably find us there. Thanks for coming back. I am your host, Jamie Green. You can find me everywhere at The Roarbots. And joining me this week is a familiar face that hasn't been around these parts in a while. Oh, I'm sorry. You mentioned my face. That's just, <laughs> you just ruined the whole mood. Um, it's, it's okay. We, we're a podcast. Audio is our friend. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I was expecting the voice you hadn't heard in a while. And you say face and I immediately start looking around going, is my camera on? Yeah, that was on. Well, Samantha Fisher, thanks for coming back. Well, thanks for having me. It has been a while. It has been far too long. Yeah. What have you been up to? Anything exciting that you want to share with the people? Oh, Lord, I have, other than it being insanely busy at the day job and, you know, various other things um, that aren't so fun to talk about, but are part Mm. of life, um, I have fallen down a research black hole, so to speak, um, and I've been spending a lot of time researching um, my next steps, so what I plan on doing here in about four or five years. So, oh, yeah, now pretty exciting. Uh, I, well, I, I don't know if you want to let the cat out of the bag, and we, we don't want to derail <laughs> the train at this point, but I will just let people know that I know what you're talking about. Well, I don't know, probably don't know all the details, but it's so exciting. Um, and I'm very jealous for the adventure that you're about to embark on. Um, and I can't wait to hear every step of the way, but it's gonna be, it's gonna be an adventure and it's gonna be fun. I think so. I think it's going to be hard and mm-hmm. scary and absolutely amazingly fun all at the yeah. same time. So yeah. I am, I'm really excited. I've actually shared it with my most immediate family, not all of them, just who, those whom I've talked to recently. And I'm kind of excited about how excited people are for me. Like <laughs> Even my son was just like, that's pretty cool. You know, yeah. like I thought he'd be like, what are you insane? Well, I know everybody, everybody right now is going, well, they're being so vague. I hate this. I'm just going to skip forward. I we, I Love mean, it. it's, 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 it's something to do with travel and big life changes and, and, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth, but it is very exciting. And anybody who, who is not excited when they hear about it, um, check their pulse because they're probably dead. They would have to be. It yeah. just, this is so exciting. 
But talking about things, let's talk about things that we don't have to be so vague about. We can be a little bit more specific. So this week, uh, we are bringing you our conversation. Sam and I talked to Lamar Giles. And the reason, well... I guess the, I could say the reason that this came about is because of you. So do you you remember how that happened? Yes. Um, and full confession, when you hear the interview with Lamar, I did, in fact, tell him up front yeah. that I wasn't familiar with him before this incident. Um, so I was kind of glad that this happened. Um, I use Twitter a lot, um, mostly in a passive way. I, I'm not very active on there. Occasionally, I'll share a little tidbit or a story or an opinion. And then, you know, the rest of the internet slaps me back and lets me know that my opinions are shit, and, oops, sorry, are, are crap, and I shouldn't, you know, have them. Um, and then I stop sharing for a while. But I, I like to read. And that's actually what I get from Twitter the most is reading other people's thoughts and stuff. And I just, it, it showed up because someone that, that I follow follows somebody who follows somebody who liked something and then they liked it and then somebody shared it. You know how that works on Twitter. And all of a sudden, even though nobody's participated in it, you're six steps away from the, <laughs> the conversation with Kevin Bacon that happened over there. And in this case, Lamar Giles. Um, and I stumbled upon a Twitter thread. Um, and I had to kind of backtrack and find the beginning of it from where somebody shared something. And, and I'm glad I did. And it was a conversation that involved a whole bunch of people. But obviously, the key person to this conversation is Lamar Giles. So I'll kind of zero in on that. He was part of a conversation about um, diversity in publishing, particularly young adult, but not just that we don't get enough books published, but it was a very specific conversation about how those books don't get supported even when they get published that they don't get the same resources from publishers they don't get the same you know media pushes they don't get the same bookings like even that other and i'm just going to say white writers get um for their first books uh and that it basically it it felt very real to me because it's similar but different in that I have to work three to four times harder in every job I have because I'm a woman to be perceived as even half as good as a man. And the the conversation just spoke to me because it was a bunch of non-white young adult authors talking about the things they've had to do themselves to try to get their books in front of people's eyeballs that aren't of the, of whatever persuasion said author is of. And I read it and it took me hours. It, this thing had been going on <laughs> for a couple of days and lots of people participated. And I was just particularly struck by Lamar's almost positive approach to a negative situation. Um, it's easy to kind of give in to the, to the bitterness and the woe is me. And it's just not fair by golly. I'm going to stop my foot, and not do anything about it. And just pow, I'm prone to doing that from time to time myself. <laughs> and he didn't do that. And whenever he responded to somebody, he was very, um, he, he wasn't like splainy or by any means. Right. He wasn't like, well, let me tell you how to do that little lady or something. Anybody, he definitely didn't do that. It was just very supportive, very, you know, here's what I do in this case, or, or have you thought of this, but in very positive, supportive ways. And there was just something about reading his messages. And I went and I looked him up 
um, looked at what he'd been doing, uh, looked at the style of writing he does and everything. And I was like, by golly, we got to talk to this guy. He's, he's got a wonderful voice and he's bringing a good message and in a positive way. So that's where I was like, hey, Jamie, can, can we get this guy? Because I really want to talk to him. And, yeah. and then here we are. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was a really because you when that was happening, you you tipped me off to it. And I went back in and I, I probably didn't read everything, but I did. I, I caught up on the threads and I saw what they were talking about. And it was it was, as you said, very specific to publishing. And it wasn't just so much how do we get our you know, how do we promote author's first books. It was just how do we get authors of color not even an equal amount of promotion to other authors, but just how do we how do we get our books promoted at all? How do we get mm -hmm. the same interview opportunities? How do we get the same press coverage? How do we get the same event invitations? You know, things like that. Mm -hmm. And it was it was exactly as you said, it wasn't um, um, complainy. It was a bunch of like-minded authors saying, what can we do? How can we solve this situation? Uh, it was very much a, um, a, a conversation among like-minded industry professionals, you know, saying like how we all face this issue. We all face this problem. We can't fix the industry. How can we fix the way that we approach our projects and we get, you know, the people who hired us to write these books to maybe give it a little bit more attention. What it is, what, what can we do as authors? How can we get our books and projects out there in even a fraction of the way that, you know, superstar authors will get promoted. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so I reached out and I said, well, I mean, we're just a little podcast, but I'll do my part. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Lamar was thrilled to be on. He was he was super happy, and it, it took a little while to get him on because he actually was going to Hong Kong. Um, he was going for uh, a book a book expo there, and uh, so we we talked to him when he when he came back. But he he has a new book out now. Um, the, it's called The Last Last Day of Summer, which is part of a brand new imprint at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt called Versify. And if you have listened to our interview uh, way back when with Kwame Alexander, you are familiar with one who Kwame Alexander is, but this is basically his baby. It is they, uh, HMH has given Alexander a free reign. It almost seems from the outside to curate the books that are going to be in this imprint. Mm -hmm. He has, um, he is basically the acquisitions editor for this imprint. And if you know what, if you know anything about book publishing, the people who acquire the books and they acquire the titles and the authors are usually the publisher. They're on staff at the publisher, they're the editors, but they have given this, this imprint over to Kwame Alexander. And they have said, you can choose the books that we publish under your imprint. And he's accepting he's accepting submissions from people who have agents, people who don't have agents. Um, you know, there's no slush pile. So if you are just a first time author, but you um, have a have a project that that speaks to the mission of Versify, then he welcomes your submission. Um, I actually have the website right here. If you go to Versify, it's V E R S I F Y VersifyBooks.tumblr.com. It's uh, there's all the information there about what the imprint is and uh, what books they've published already. 
and how to submit your own manuscript or idea. So the reason I'm talking about Versify is because Lamar's book, The Last Last Day of Summer, which is a middle grade book kind of in the vein of Hardy Boys, um, is one of the launch titles for this new imprint. And the imprint is wildly diverse in not only the types of authors that they're, they're publishing, but also the types of books that they're publishing. So Lamar's book is a, is a middle grade reader. They're also within the first four books, this first um, batch of books that they published, there's a young adult uh, novel, and then there's two picture books. So they, they are not being pigeonholed even right out of the gate. They're just looking for great stories um, great voices and in trying to represent all kids and all readers. And uh, this was something we talked about relatively recently when we had Hannah Khan on the show, because her book, one of her books was also in the first batch of a, uh, a, a an imprint at a different publisher that was also similarly, similarly targeting um, d- diverse voices and representation among authors and characters. Uh, but they all, they are similar in the sense that they are trying to tell stories about kids from all backgrounds without making them the quote unquote other, without showing, putting them in adversity. They're just kids being kids who happen to not be white or who happen to, you know, come from a background that maybe we don't see enough of in, in publishing and in young adult or in middle grade books. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's his new book. That's Versify. Lamar was also one of the founding uh, members or founding people of We Need Diverse Books, which has taken off in a big way. Yeah. Um, and I think that's sort of what put kind of it put him on. Well, you just said you weren't familiar with him, but like it, you were familiar with We Need Diverse Books. So I think like once you made that connection, I think that was probably for you again, not putting words in your, your, your mouth, but like mm-hmm. that was probably one of the things that sent off alarm bells for you and said, Oh, of course this is that guy. Okay. Well, yeah. And he's, and we talked to him a little bit about this. Um, he's not, he's not like the front person no. for, for that org. He's very behind the scenes. He was a co-founder and he just kind of helps out behind the yeah. scenes a little bit. And he just wanted to get it started. And then basically he turned it over to the people that he knew would do with it what needed to be done. And so he's very, you know, kind of modest about even being involved in it because of that. Yeah. And, um, you know, he does play some parts and roles, but he's very quiet and like, See, I, I knew of the group, but I actually did not know he was a co-founder. Like this all kind of came yeah. and clicked together when I'm researching him and I'm like, wait a minute, wait, he's part of that group. And so I went <laughs> and I started looking at all the people and I kind of had to dig and I'm like, that's what it is. So like he co-founded the, okay, yeah, it's all just kind of coming back to me now. <laughs> it seems like he co-founded it and then stepped back and it sort of just kind of consults now when they need him. But uh, mm-hmm. he's focusing a lot more on his writing, which is perfectly fine. Um, so last, last day of summer, super fun book. We talk about that. We talk about uh, his involvement with Versify and getting on board with Kwame Alexander. We talk about a little bit about, um, we need diverse books. We talk about writing and reading YA and where it is now. We do talk a little bit about some of his previous books. Uh, it's a really good, co- oh, and of course, uh, I talked to him about Hong Kong cause I couldn't resist. He had just come back. 
<laughs> but uh, it's a great conversation and please do uh, stick around week after week. Come on back, hit subscribe. We love having you guys here. We have some really good conversations coming up uh, next week and the week after and the week after that. So do hit subscribe if you don't already and make sure that we end up in your little podcast app or on your Google play or in your iTunes or whatever it is that you use to listen to podcasts. Make sure that we're there every week so you can hear these great conversations about creativity from people all over the spectrum. Uh, I am your host, Jamie Green. You can find me at The Robots. And Sam, where can the good people find you? Oh, well, as I would tell my father back in the day, hell, if I don't change my ways. <laughs> but on the best place to find me, like I said, I hang out mostly on Twitter. Um, and the handle there is now... It actually, I believe it changed since the last time I was on here with you, but it's at Huntress underscore one. W-O-N one. Perfect. And uh, thank you guys for coming back, like I said, and we will see you next week. Here is our conversation with Lamar Giles. Take care. Um, let's start off by talking about the newest book your upcoming book the last last day of summer uh it is one of the launch titles for the versify imprint over at uh houghton mifflin harcourt how did that come about i guess is, is where i want to start okay well versify is the brainchild of children author superstar kwame alexander um he wanted to put something together that would allow him to put just some really great books in the world and about Two and a half years ago, I've known Kwame for many years, but two and a half years ago, I got a text from him. I'll never forget it. It was an October night. I was still in grad school. I was coming home super tired, um, about to have dinner and do some homework. And I get this text that says, hey, Lamar, I want to publish your breakout novel. <laughs> and, you know, I've known Kwame for some time. So I immediately wrote back. It was like, what? <laughs> and then he tells me about the, the idea for Versify, which didn't have a name yet. But he was like, look, man, you know. I love your work. I think you're one of the most talented people out here working. And I want to give you a shot to just do something you want, whatever it is. And I, and I was still sort of confused about it. Like, I'm like, so I can write anything I want. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, Kwame, are you sure? Because I promise you, <laughs> it's going to get weird. And he's like, he's like, do you? And that was pretty much the start of it. Like that night, I started thinking of ideas. And I'd had some loose ideas in my head for things that I wanted to play with. And he pretty much just sort of let me off the leash. And here we are. So he just said, write whatever you want. What made you go to middle grade? Because that was something that you hadn't really touched on before. Well, because I had, first of all, um, I started out writing adult. Um, and I, I didn't have a ton of success there with my novels. I sold a lot of adult short fiction. And at the same time, I was reading young adult. I always read children's books ever since I was a kid. So, like, I'm the type of writer where over the course of my career, I hope to write everything from picture books to adult books. So when he said I could write anything, middle grade just opened up for me automatically because it's something I hadn't tackled yet. And the idea I had was inspired by The Phantom Tollbooth, which is one of my favorite books. Right. And so... It's just he I felt like he gave me the keys to the kingdom because, you know, having broken out NYA with my mystery novels, you know, pretty much those publishers were like, you know, that's kind of where we want to keep you. Um, you're good at that. People like the mysteries. Stay there. So this mm -hmm. is just an opportunity to show people like, hey, I can do more. Yeah, this is like the golden opportunity. It was, yep. it was it was a blank slate. And you're like, well, this is 
this is my chance to show everybody that I'm more than what I've done. Exactly. Um, so y- your books have been YA. Now you- you've you've got middle grade coming up. But what is what is it about that audience? Like, what's the appeal of writing for young readers? Well, I have a, a very personal reason for it. Um, I can remember being around that age, the middle grade audience, general age. I can remember being like maybe anywhere from eight to 11 years old. And I remember starting out as a kid, everybody around me loved reading, myself included. And stories were great. Fantasies were great. Science fiction were, was great. And then you started to reach like this certain age around 11 or 12 where you start to recognize like, hey, all this stuff we've been reading that we've been presented in school is is great, but it's not about us. I'm a young black boy in a factory town, and it's just dawning on me that every story that everyone's ever put in front of me does not feature young black children. And it's around that time that many of my peers started to peel away from reading and writing. Um, not only that, because I was stubborn and still enjoyed reading and writing because I was playing with making up stories at that time, I started to get teased and bullied about still having a joy for it because essentially, and I'm just going to be frank, the people in my neighborhood would say stuff like, you know, that's for white boys. Mm-hmm. Those are white boy books. That's what white boys do. And that was a hard thing to deal with. So fast forward to now, obviously I, I was able to push through that. And now that I have a voice, I want to try to provide the types of books that I never could find when I was that age. So that's the appeal for me, because even with my young adult books, which is for a slightly older audience, when I'm in schools across the country and people come up and thank me for writing characters that they could relate to, that means everything to me. Yeah. We, um, two, two things. We, we recently had Hannah Khan on the show. Um, and I'm, I, I'm struck in talking to both of you and, and doing research about, about both of you, the, the parallels between the two of you guys. Like She was also part of this initial um, batch of books at a new imprint dedicated to expanding you know, the, the, the representation that we see in publishing. Um, you know, she, her books were part of a, um, an imprint dedicated to Muslim voices and Muslim stories and characters, whereas yours are just, um, I think Kwame is going for, you know, this first batch of books is focusing on African-American voices, but I don't know if that's the limit to what he is anticipating. I think he is just sort of um, stretching the boundaries in, in every direction. Um, but in, in, that, in my conversation with her, we talked quite a bit about how diversity is not adversity mm-hmm. um, and how it's important to tell these stories that include the representation and include this diversity of characters, but it doesn't otherize them. You know, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't use that diversity as a crutch, which in her case with with Muslim characters it, it, it is almost always the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, all readers, but especially kids need to see all kids of all kinds just being kids. Sure. And it feels like that's something that you definitely set out to do with the last last day of summer. I did. And I also I, I'll just say, I think Kwame has a similar idea with the imprint because he's not he's not imposing any limits on who he's publishing yeah. um, and what sort of books come out. I'm, I'm, you know, and I'm happy to be a part of something where he has that sort of vision. And yes, with um, Last Last Day of Summer, I purposely wrote this to just be a fun adventure where two black boys happen to be the heroes. Yeah, um, I, I, I wrote it in a way where if a young black child picks it up, they could recognize themselves, but it's also written to be entertaining for anyone who likes just a fun fantasy with a lot of weird twists and turns. And it's funny. 
<laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, just something as simple. So, you know, I mean, spo- no, not a spoiler alert, but, you know, the, the conceit of the book is that time is frozen um, and everybody around around them is is standing still. But what I love is that the people that are frozen are aware that they're frozen and they can still talk. And like, it, it's, it's just a big deal. They're just like, Oh yeah. The, you know, the legendary brothers are going to hear to save us. But you know, in the meantime, I'm kind of stuck here and could you scratch this itch? And that's not <laughs> something that I'd seen before. You know, usually when in these, these, these time gets frozen, time is frozen and people are all still kind of stories like they're frozen, they're statues. But in this one, like the, they interact with people and I think it's hilarious. <laughs> oh, thank you. I, and, you know, there was actually a problem for me when I started out because I froze time and I said, Hey, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't really give them many people to interact yeah, with. Right. Everyone's just, I was like, and then I that was like, this is, this is fantasy. Anything can happen. Yeah. Let's have them all still talk and just have a good time with it. So I'm glad that that came across the way I intended. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, it was hilarious. Yeah, it, it is. It's just a fun story. And, and, you know, it, that, and that's where I was coming from is that it, you know, you, you have um, characters that look like you when you were younger and it looks like, you know, the people that you hung out with, but it doesn't, dwell on that you know and i feel like mm-hmm. so much of the books that we see now that are held up as um you know like these are great books for you know to, to show diversity or to, to have kids read but it's always about the adversity that those characters feel you know and it's um it's i, I remember reading somewhere recently where you know they were talking to the young african-american kids and they're like look there's only so many books we can read about martin luther king jr or slavery you know like we, yeah. we need other books we need other characters let me tell you when i was i can remember vividly being in school and seeking out books with african-american representation where they were doing anything other than what was being put in front of me all the time and there were only two books that would ever get recommended to me when i was in middle school and high school it was Roots by Alex Haley yeah. and the, autobiog- uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X by Alex Haley. Yeah. Um, and it just got to a point where I'm like, I, I, these are great books. I certainly am happy I, I've been exposed to them, but is there nothing else? And I really couldn't find anything even close until I was in my late teens. And that's when I discovered Walter Dean Myers. Mm. And his books meant the world to me, but I just knew like there, there needed to be more, there had to be more. And like I said, now that I have a voice and I'm in this industry, I've sort of dedicated myself to at least providing that where, when I can. Yeah. Um, well, that kind of leads us into talking about we need, a, we need diverse books. Um, how, how did, I mean, it, it's kind of a dumb question. How did that come about? Because we know oh, no. why it came about. But how did, how did that partnership come about? Sure. And, and, and what were the original goals of the organization? What were you guys setting out to achieve? Well, it, it came about because of, I remember this was back in maybe March of 2014. I was sitting down with Eleanor, who um, Korean American writes fantastic fantasy novels, and Meg Medina, who just won the Newbery Medal. And we're, we're all great friends. Uh, and we were all sitting together and talking about what you and I just talked about, which is growing up and not seeing much of ourselves in books. And it was Ellen's idea to do something to get that word out that we're not the only ones that feel that way. And we didn't have the name of the organization at that time. Ellen said she's going to think about it. Uh-huh. A couple of weeks later, she came up with the hashtag, we need diverse books. And it was just a matter of putting this thing out on Twitter and seeing who would answer the call. But it just so happened to be around the time that the big industry conference, BookCon, had announced their slate of, it was supposed to be like the slate of the best 
children's authors, all the superstar children's authors, 40 children's authors. And it, all of them were white, mm-hmm. except for there was all white, except for Grumpy Cat. I don't know. If, I don't know if you remember Grumpy Cat. <laughs> I don't know if you remember. Grumpy oh, I remember. Cat at all. I, I yeah, know, you yeah. know, I think I was. That was uh, the book expo. I was there because I met Grumpy Cat that year. At book oh expo. <laughs> did you see? Did you see when they brought Grumpy Cat in? Because I was being interviewed by NPR when it happened. It was like the most surreal thing because that he. he I, I don't know if Grumpy Cat is a male or female. I'll just say the cat was on a pillow. Yeah. Like being brought in by its handler yeah so it was on this plush pillow and it had like groupies following it and paparazzi like taking pictures i don't know if it was staged but it was the weirdest thing i ever saw and <laughs> and it, it was just a strange strange day but when when BookCon announced that slate that's when ellen was like we got to pull the trigger on this hashtag thing yeah because there are way more people representing children's um literature that are getting no appreciation right now. And so that hashtag launched in like early April. I say within a day it was trending. Um, by the end of the week, it was like trending all over the world. And by the end of the month, I think we had something like 150 million internet impressions. Mm-hmm. And so on the strength of that, publishing was paying attention. Mm-hmm. And Ellen, with her in her infinite wisdom, was like, we can't let it die. And that's when she started um, the efforts to make it a nonprofit. And all of us chipped in. And it's almost five years later, and the organization's still going strong. And oh, and I'm sorry, I tell you what the ultimate goal was yeah. is to advocate for more um, representation across all the publishing. So that's in the books that get published, um, the people who work in publishing, and um, the creators who get acquired by publishers. Oh, interesting. So, like, I was reading on the We Need Diverse Books website. And um, I was really intrigued by your mentor-mentee program. Yes. And I like if you look at the lists from the first year on, it gets bigger and bigger and more people are being included. Um, but one thing I didn't see on there that I was curious about is what are the expectations for the mentees mm-hmm. in that program? Well, I'll be honest with you. I'm not super involved in that particular program. My role in the organization for a long time was just like writing policy and um, communications. So I'm not 100 percent sure on how they run that program because there's a specific team that does it. But I would Mm -hmm. imagine that the mentee um, likely produces work that the mentor critiques and they, they use that feedback to possibly improve. And either if they're an illustrator, you know, get try to get jobs, maybe the mentor tour can refer them or if they're a writer their writing improves and maybe helps them acquire an agent to eventually sell that work oh exciting that's got to be quite the experience for those mentees to get that sort of dedication from these folks with all this experience i would imagine i mean we've had good feedback from people who've been involved in that program and i apologize that i can't speak to it in more detail it's just that um we have about five major programs, I, I recall, and we're all volunteer. So it's like everybody does this work in their spare time. Oh, I totally understand. Uh, you've got to share that burden to get things yeah. to happen. Yeah. Um, I But I was also interested, you mentioned that the it all started with a hashtag, right? Yes. Um, and I actually found you through a Twitter conversation about the limitations that young adult authors who are also people of color are experiencing. Mm -hmm. Um, Because my kid's older. He 
missed your whole <laughs> your whole span there of books. Sure. He just was he's already too old for those books. <laughs> but um I did look them up and I was looking up a lot of the folks that were in that conversation as I was just kind of watching it unfold on Twitter a few months back. And it was very interesting to me. Could you share a little more with us about what sorts of hurdles you guys are experiencing and what you're doing to try to overcome those and what we can do to help? Sure. Um, I can tell you the number one thing I struggle with is um, I, I say visibility and discoverability. And I can speak to my first two books in particular where the, and this probably isn't an uncommon problem, but my books were acquired by an editor, Phoebe A, who I've had the opportunity to work with again on um, the We Need Diverse Books anthologies. And she was pretty much the only person in publishing that would take a chance on me. Um, my rejection letters were were sometimes overt and sometimes subtle in that my writing was good, my story was good, but they just didn't feel there was any sort of audience for me or the sorts of characters I write, which is to say Black people. And so when... Phoebe left and I, my first two books were published. I mean, I got next to no support. I mean, I don't think there was a way to have less support from, from the, the business than what I got. Um, I often tell my wife, I felt like I was left to die, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, every bit of marketing, publicity of all the events um, were pretty much put together by me. And the thing is, like publishers don't do that for every book they acquire. You can tell when they care and they think a book's going to succeed. And I think it's a disproportionate amount of books that have um, more varied representation that don't get that sort of support. And so it's often a scramble to even let people know you wrote a book. Um, mm-hmm. To this day, I, I can almost guarantee I can walk into any bookstore and not find my books. And and that's been a conversation my agents and I have had with uh, my publishers a lot lately. Like, you know, because you can go into a bookstore and I've done this. I, I mean, and I, I hate I hate to say it this way. I've dog-eared the pages of some books that have been sitting on the shelf for months and gone back months later and that same book is still there. And, I don't, and we can't figure out why my books or the books of some of my colleagues and peers don't get that sort of shelf space so they might accidentally be discovered. And mm-hmm. so that's one huge thing, which is just discoverability. And then it's publicity. Um, it's hard for us to get the sorts of features and spotlights that a lot of books, a lot of the buzzier books get. Now, I will admit, I, I can't say I've been much more fortunate with my last two books. I've been reviewed in the New York Times book review twice with really positive reviews. Mm-hmm. And my novel Spin was a New York Times editor's choice last week. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't really make that same claim anymore but i certainly will argue it for other writers who are coming up who are going to have that struggle what what's the rationale given i mean even if it's just sort of subtle like what's the rationale that was that you think is is going through publishers minds when they say like oh there's no audience for for this type of character because i mean that's, that's patently untrue so what what do you think is going through their minds to make them think that I think for a long time, they just operated on an old myth. It was one of those things. It's like, it's like that sort of wisdom that gets passed down, but there's really no truth to it. Mm. I, um, I'll, I'll give you another example. I had a conversation online a couple of days ago about a thing I experienced a lot, which is when I write a book and I provide a working title that I like, and almost immediately I'll hear back from an editor like, no, we don't think people will buy a book that 
this name that let's think of something else and i'm like well who how do you know yeah. like there there are some books with some weird titles out there and, and at no point have i changed the title and suddenly jumped onto a bestseller list so where's the logic <laughs> in that this title is better than that title but it's just this thing they they've always done where it's like you know we're not going to go with the first choice um we don't think that's marketable. There's a more marketable combination of words that works. And I don't think there's any da- data to back it up. And I think it's just when you talk about the certain characters or certain writers won't have an audience, it's just traditionally been, we don't, we haven't done it. Maybe the one or two times we tried it, it didn't work out, even though we didn't put any marketing effort behind it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and because it didn't work out, it means no one wants to read this stuff. And like you said, it, we, we can look at the bestseller list today and compare it to some the list six years ago and see that that is absolutely not true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other thing that kind of blows my mind is, I mean, I, I work in publishing. My, my full-time job is in publishing. I, I work in, <clears throat> excuse me, I work in non, nonfiction. But I, I understand how the marketing works or doesn't work. And I understand the limitations of it. But it it kind of seems so counterintuitive that when a publisher gets a book by a superstar author or something that they know is going to be a big hit, they put all of their money behind that book. Mm-hmm. Well, you already know that it's going to be a big hit because you, you right. this author already has legions of fans or this is the third book in a series that has sold remarkably well. So of course people are going to buy it. Why right. wouldn't they choose to put those resources behind another book that they've already committed to publishing so they believe in it, but maybe needs that extra push to get in front of more eyeballs? That's where I don't understand the, the thinking. I don't understand the, the, the procedures that lead to that decision-making that say, well, we're going to put all of our money behind the next Harry Potter book. Well, obviously that book's going to sell. You know, right. w- Why wouldn't you put your money behind something else that you theoretically already believe in because you've agreed to publish it? Um, first of all, I would love to sit in the room when you have that question and answer <laughs> with whatever marketers you know. Um, but I, I agree with you. And... It's one of those things that has totally mystified me, but this is the thing I'm advocating for in the future, particularly when I talk to um, up and coming writers who are new to this industry. I am really trying to push writers to be loud and and ask for more from their publisher. Doesn't mean you're going to get it. I know for a fact I've done it and have have been ignored, but I think we got to stop being so nice and polite and treating this industry like they did us a favor by letting us in and really step to our publisher and say, hey, Treat me like you think I'm going to succeed. And if not, then in a way, that's good to know, too, because when it's opportunities for me to move in different directions, perhaps with different publishers, I know that you didn't have my back. So I don't have to feel unduly loyal to you. Mm. Mm -hmm. That kind of leads us back to Versify, though, because it's Mm -hmm. it's it's a big publisher, you know, behind Mm -hmm. it. It's a superstar author curating the, the titles. Um, and it's it's got a wide range of books, not just um, in terms of, of the characters that we see, but also in the the target audience, because we've got there's young adult books, there's your middle grade book, there's a picture book. Um, do you I mean, I don't know how privy you are to the future of that imprint, but you say you're close with Kwame. How I mean, what are the plans moving forward? Is it to continue to be that diverse and in terms of who they're targeting? Um, so I, I can't speak definitively because I mean, even though Kwame and I are good friends, um, I, I'm not in like his, his business yeah. meetings and things. But I, I think I can infer a couple of things just from how he operates. I think, yes, his 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 goal and vibe is to make it as broad as possible. Um, he, he's often said 
all books for all children. Um, so I think he has a goal to really serve his children in the broadest way possible. Um, but in terms of like what we were just talking about and books having success, I think we're in a good position because Kwame has been in the trenches um, much longer than people realize. Um, some people maybe only know him from the point that he won the Newberry for the crossover. Right. But Kwame spent a lot of time dealing with the same issues I described for myself not getting support when he felt he deserved it, having to create his own marketing visibility opportunities. So having a person who's a publisher and who has also gone through those struggles, I think he has a, a keener sense on how to give books the visibility they need to succeed, which will benefit everyone, yeah. the author and the reader. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we had him on the show oh, a while back. It was this was long be it was about a year yeah ago. long before Versify yeah. was announced. So I feel like we need to have him back and, and pick in, pick into his brain a little bit about this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I'm uh, sorry. Go ahead, Sam. Sorry, I just had one more thing on the whole marketing perspective. Uh, I kind of have a theory on why things are happening the way Jamie that you kind of said you don't understand why they do it the way they do, putting the money in the sure thing. And maybe I'm hearkening to my day job experience a little bit here, but all marketing is geared towards what people already like. So I think that publishers are a little bit guilty of that as well. They know that people like, as you said, Harry Potter. So when they get something along those same lines, they say, ooh, we can make money off this, and they push it. Mm -hmm. It's all about that data mining about people's preferences and their online presence and stuff. And I think we're doing ourselves a disservice across the board, but particularly in publishing, because I get bored with the same book over and over and over again. I want something new. I want that experience of Lamar's freezing people, but them still being able to experience and interact. I've never heard that before either. So I want yeah. that. And there yeah. are so many books. So please, for the love of God, let me know about these new books. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. Marketing is hard, you know, and especially in publishing, putting a different kind of book in a reader's hand is one of the hardest things that you can do because it's it's hard to reach those readers. It's hard to mm -hmm. convince people that a book they've never tried or a story they've never tried is worth their time. And so I think you're right. I think a lot of times they put the money behind the sure thing because then they can say, hey, look how successful we were in selling that book. Um, you know, it's sort of like a, you know, pat on the back kind of thing. But I think you guys hit the magic the sweet spot there with we need diverse books because I think the the power of social media and the power of that crowdsourcing is such a better way to get the word out about well if you like this try these other 10 books about things you may have not have ever heard of or by authors you don't know right now but are well worth your time and I think mm -hmm. that's so much a better way to do it than traditional print publishing marketing teams who I, I think are working on a very old antiquated model. Yeah. Agree. Agree. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, let's talk Hong Kong. Cause you know, you just can't, oh, you yeah. just got back yeah. and I had told you before you left that it was my favorite city in the world. And I want to know how it went. 
Oh, okay. So Hong Kong was fantastic. Um, I was working the whole time, so I didn't get to do as much sightseeing as I wanted, though I, I, I saw a bit of much of the city. Um, it, I was there for the Hong Kong Young Readers Festival. Okay. And so I arrived there on a Sunday night, and from Monday through Friday, I visited an average of two schools wow. a day. And um, it, that's a super busy schedule, but the kids were great, um, really had some good crowds. They had great questions. And so I got a chance to talk to them about much of the same stuff we're talking about now, and they were really receptive to it. And I also got a chance to do um, several writing workshops to get them putting some of their own words on paper. So that was very cool. Okay, so I have to ask. So I lived in China for several years, um, and mm-hmm. it's as close to it's not. And it's this is this is a terrible thing for me to say, but when compared to someplace like the United States, it feels like a monoculture. You know, if every mm-hmm. everybody kind of looks the same, everybody kind of has the similar background, similar experiences. There's not the diversity that we see in North America or or even in Europe. How mm-hmm. was you, know, you say you talked a lot about things that we're talking about here. How was that received? Did they understand it? Like, did they, because it's not something that they necessarily relate to on a daily basis. I think. I would think of the 10, the 10 schools I went to, I think nine of them really got it. Um, there was the, and the 10th and the school was just a sound issue. We were in a gymnasium. Some windows were open. The microphone was weird. And I think we just couldn't hear each other for the most part. So that was a super awkward mm. visit. But everybody else, like, I think they got it. I got a lot of email afterwards with kids I met saying, you know, they never really thought about the idea of how all over the world there are people who never get to see themselves in books and how important that is and how, you know, they think about it. They haven't even read a lot of books about Hong Kong and they live in right. Hong Kong. And, and and it makes them want to write things about where they're from. So I would say like 90% got it and the 10% that didn't, it was just a technical issue. That's fantastic though. That's really great. I mean, so I, I didn't quite realize you were there for that long and that's what you were doing. I thought, I don't know. I thought you were there for for just like a book convention or something. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah so that's yeah. fantastic that you got into the classrooms and, and that the message was received. That's I getting into classrooms. I, I didn't visit any in, in Hong Kong because I worked in mainland and I lived there. But mm-hmm. um, it's so different. It's the classroom environment, schools. It's so different from what we all experienced here, even though we have remarkably different experiences <laughs> growing yes, up in, in yes. America. But um, yeah, schools in China are something else. Um, yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, I, I hope to go back someday when I have more time to just do different things that aren't mm-hmm. work but for a work trip it was like the best possible work yeah. trip. oh that's great that's so great to hear and that was your first time right it was my first time yes and I, I i i made i made a point to bring my wife with me because neither of us had ever been to asia and so it was just it was just like one of the coolest yeah. trips did how was the food excellent <laughs> um excellent has had this really great noodle and wonton soup and we went to this really fancy dinner one night thrown by the organizers and i actually actually had pigeon oh nice how was that i was it was it was good i was nervous (laughs) because you know i'm used to you know seeing them in new york and they're kind of big and scary (laughs) but um it it was actually pretty delicious and you know um i I would not be opposed to having it again there I don't know if I'd have it. Yeah, I, you know, you don't just <laughs> from like a New York street vendor be like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that from someone's car. Oh. 
Yeah. That is just gross. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> some of the, uh, I've eaten a lot, a lot of crazy things. We, we don't have to get into it now. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, some of the craziest have been in China. But Hong Kong food, I mean, I could go there for a week and just eat. And that would be, like, I would be happy. That's yeah. all I could do. Yeah. The food was it's amazing. amazing. It's an amazing place. Yeah. I, I've been, I've been a lot of places, but Hong Kong still remains my favorite. It's not cheap. <laughs> it's a very expensive yeah. place to visit. Yeah. Um, but my God, I love it there. I love it. I love it. Love it. Uh, um, so Sam, I know you had a couple questions about, um, some, some of his previous books. Did you want to dig into that? Uh, yeah, actually I did. Especially the, um, fresh ink, the anthology, mm-hmm. uh, that you kind of curated and edited, not necessarily wrote. Um, because I've read most of that now. It was mm-hmm. the first book I picked up when I was kind of Twitter stalking you a few months ago, which I already admitted to. Uh, <laughs> these stories are amazing. And I think part of it for me is you probably picked up from my voice. I am a Midwestern white woman <laughs> of mm-hmm. a certain age. And I never read stories like this when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And they're so eye-opening to me. Um, and I was just curious that this particular anthology, since I've read most of the stories now, how did you choose these stories? And what was it about them that you were like, yep, this one's going in the book? Um, so, yeah, I have to be super honest here. Like, I feel bad sometimes even calling myself the editor because it didn't feel like doing work. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened was this is our second anthology. And from the beginning of We Need Diverse Books, we've gotten a lot of offers from the superstars of children's literature who say, hey, if you ever need us to help, we're here. Mm-hmm. And so the first anthology was a middle grade anthology called Flying Lessons. And so we had 12 slots in that book and um, quickly filled those. Ellen O edited that one. I was up next for Fresh Ink, and it was really just a matter of, hey, guys, we know we couldn't get you into the first book. Do you have time to contribute something for the second book? And it was like immediately the first people we asked were like, yes, we have time. And so it's, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't like this, this um, super strenuous selection process. It was more like we have so many people who have offered that we're just trying to figure out when their schedules work because there's a third anthology coming out in the summer called Hero Next Door which will feature 12 more authors who we couldn't get into the initial two. And so it's, it's really not so much of how do we pick these stories. It's just like who's available and still willing. And so that part wasn't hard at all. And then in terms of the, my, my editorial duties, I certainly gave my feedback and I worked with Phoebe A, who I mentioned earlier in the podcast. Um, she's the, the, the behind the scenes editor on these anthologies. And so we did offer our feedback and get second and third drafts when we needed them. But when you look at the roster, these are professionals and it just was not difficult work to get those stories in shape. Um, And I'll point this out. My favorite thing about the anthologies are we always save a spot for an unpublished author. Um, And in in, in Fresh Ink, it was Amina May Safi who went on to sell two more books after we accepted her into the anthology. So she's actually, you know, building her own spectacular career. But um, like I said, it it doesn't it didn't feel like I worked that hard. So I feel shy about even claiming I did much there. But it, it was a great experience. Well, thank you. 
to to you and everyone at We Need Diverse Books because especially for me when I pick up anthologies or short stories from various things I'm shopping for new novel writers when I mm -hmm. do that mm -hmm. this to me is like I'm getting a taste of what you can bring to me and not it doesn't necessarily have to be the story a lot of it is I like somebody's style their sense of humor even if that story didn't resonate I'll be like, I really liked their style. I'm going to go check something else out by them. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to say thank you for these um, and pass that along if you get a chance, because I now have a whole group of new writers that I'm excited to go find more work by. Well, I, I will certainly pass that along and thank you because, I mean, that's really the, the, the method behind our madness because we realized early on that as many books as we want to champion, if you're talking about one young person, it could be very hard for them to walk into a bookstore and be able to walk out with 12 books. But we recognize that by putting a bunch of short stories in the one volume, we could do exactly what you just described, expose them to a series of writers they may not have um, been aware of before and possibly give them the, the direction to go out and buy those novels when they're able to, or their parents can go out and get them, or they can go to the library and read these writers if, if money's an issue. But we wanted to kind of put these writers on their radar in one go. And so it's really nice to hear that it, that's worked. Awesome. Well, it did for me at least. And I'll continue to Twitter stalk you because I'm finding <laughs> some great new authors to read by doing that. Well, thank you so much. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, but I did want to ask more of a personal question about you and your writing, since we kind mm -hmm. of went off down the tangent of the other authors. So writing is a very personal art form. And even when it's fiction, we all know that there's a little bit of ourselves that go into everything we write. So I'm always curious to ask of authors, is there a character in one of your stories that you identify with more closely in some way? And if mm -hmm. so, why? Um, I would say in my novel, Endangered, there's a, the main character's name, Panda Daniels. And her thing is that she sneaks around and takes like pictures of her meanest schoolmates doing dirt. And then she publishes them anonymously on her photo blog, which sort of triggers a series of bad events. Yeah. And um, I, I feel like I relate to her most because she's not like a great person. And it reminds me of when I was in high school and I sort of got away from reading and writing and was really pretending to be like this different person than I was just to fit in and how I didn't feel like I was a very good person at that time. And so some of her darker personality traits, I feel like I was talking to my younger self about, you know, you really don't have to act like this. And, and, and I, I felt her a lot more because she's more of an anti-hero than the rest of the characters I've written. And I think I felt like that a lot when I was sort of like, like running around with not so great guys and, you know, pretending to be tougher than I was and, and talking different than I, than I really talk and dressing different than I really dress just to not be teased anymore. And so I, I come back to her a lot, even though that book isn't, it's probably like my, I hate to say it this way, it's probably my least popular book, but Panda feel special to me because of that time in my life interesting what pulled you out of that um well for one i graduated high school and i mean i think we all understand like once you get out of high school you sort of get away from a lot of things that maybe weren't so great for you and i ended up leaving my hometown to go to college and i met other black people who were like totally cool with stuff like comic books and science fiction and fantasy and i, I remember this time in my freshman year sitting at the lunch table 
and with a bunch of other black guys and getting into an argument about which heroes could actually have a chance in a fight with the Hulk. And I was like, <laughs> this is my tribe, you know, like, like and, and all jokes aside, it was like, I, I felt almost like crime because I remembered how long I'd gone through. Like if I had brought something like that up, I might get punched. Mm hmm. And so college was a really college was my window. Um, I was able to like really start being my true self again. I picked up writing again and just haven't looked back. See, the world needs more nerds. It's yeah. nerds. Will, nerds yeah. will save the world. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the solution solution to all problems. <laughs> you know, when I was in Hong Kong during one of my Q&A sessions, an, uh, a teacher asked me what I thought about how popular comic book characters are with the MCU um, mm -hmm. being as big as it is. And I told her, I'm like, I love it because now that it's popular for everyone, it makes it safer for those kids who wouldn't have been safe when I was young. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, like, I know there's a lot of blowback for things being so mainstream now yeah. and how, um, you know, there, there are the gatekeepers who are like, well, I liked it before it was, yeah. everybody liked it. I liked it <laughs> before it was cool. Blah, 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 blah. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. It it makes it acceptable, and it makes those lunchroom conversations about who would win in a fight, or or which you know what book you picked up last week at the store. Like it makes them not dangerous, which yeah. is kind of what they were when we were younger. Yes, absolutely. Hmm. Uh, you had mentioned the Phantom Tollbooth, but what other books did you read when you were a kid? Like, what other books do you still carry with you in, inside of you when when you sit down to write? Um, I remember. Um... The Celery Stalks at Midnight. Oh my was god! A big one for me. James I had James, I, I had James Howe on the show, and if you've never met him, oh, wow. he, is, he is just the nicest guy you will ever meet. Like he is just so so nice. And those books, it, it was Beverly Cleary, and it was the mm -hmm. Vanicula books when mm -hmm. I was a kid. Like, mm -hmm. Though that was my bread and butter, and yep. so talking to him was like a dream come true. But yep. like. Yeah, I, I. So I'm sorry to interrupt, but I. Oh no, totally you're fine. Get, you're fine. I totally no, I'm, get you I'm, with that one. I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to go back and find that episode now because I would love to hear what you all talked about. But that was a big one for me. Um, was it Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator? Yeah, um, that one doll? in particular, yeah. more so than Chocolate Factory, was big for me. Um, um, Horton hears a who. Like I mm -hmm. still to this day, that's one of my favorite books because I think I read it a little bit like a horror story. And um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's, it's kind of horrific it, when you think about it. Like is. this whole universe could just be destroyed if Horton doesn't help. And no one, it, it, it's it's one of those books that I feel like I want to write something inspired by that one day. Mm -hmm. But those are big ones that stand out to me. I'll admit, I'm getting it's getting a little harder for me to have like instant recall of titles because I was a National Book Award judge next last year. Uh, and we read so many books oh that it scrambled my brain. And so now, <laughs> like, like even as you're asking me this question, I have to sort of turn and look at my bookshelf and see what's there. Oh, yeah. um, The Mysteries of Harris Burdick. Um, do you remember that one? I don't know. Okay, so that's that. Um, it's sort of like a picture book where every page is like a super weird illustration. And there's like a title and a caption. And I think the whole thing around the book was you should um, – pick a picture and maybe make up a story for what happened there. And, okay. um, and, and it's, it's one of my favorites. Uh, I, I would get up and tell you, I think it's maybe Chris Van Allsburg's book. Yes. Okay. That yeah. makes sense. That yeah. makes sense. I can't reach it from here. I don't want to like yank my cord, but <laughs> it, 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 that's one is still something I revisit too. All right. That's fantastic. I, you know, and you, you talk about all kids, all books for all kids and how, 
you know, anybody can read YA, anybody can read middle grade, but like, I feel the same way about picture books. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel, I, I feel like picture books get a bad rap. Like they're only for little kids. And once kids get old enough to read on their own, I feel like too many parents push them out of picture books and mm-hmm. straight into chapter books. And there's nothing wrong with picture books. Like I still read picture books just for me. Like sometimes yeah. I'll read them to my kids. My kids are seven and 10 now. And sometimes I'll read them picture books, but Sometimes I'll just pick them up and read them to myself because mm-hmm. I feel like it is such a unique art form that it, it it is not just for the little kids that we read to at bedtime, you know? It, I, I agree, and mm-hmm. they're, they're, you have to admire the skill it takes to even write them because oh, yeah. I think I think they're the hardest books to write. Um, it's certainly not a, a code I've been able to crack yet, and admittedly, I, you know, I want to I want to spend more time like reading more of the greats and sort of trying to understand that form but picture books are tough and i mean i respect any writer that can create a good one yeah yeah for sure for sure um if you weren't a writer what would you be doing (laughs) um i got asked this in hong kong and and please don't laugh when i say this but i think i would want to be like a lego master builder who wouldn't want to be that? Yeah. Why would I laugh yeah, at that? Yeah, yeah. Okay, 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 good. I always feel I, I never know. I never know what I'm going to get when I say that. But like, it's like I, a just, dream job. What, yeah, are you yeah, kidding me? Yeah, I mean, so if, if I had to, if I had the choice, and it wouldn't be writer, I would want to work for Lego because I, I just love I love Legos my whole life. Like even to this day, I don't get a chance to do many sets anymore because we've been moving a bit the last couple of years. Um, my wife's had some good career opportunities, and what we found is Lego sets. Mm-hmm. If you don't glue them, they don't travel well. No, they do not. And, and I'm not. I'm not one. I'm not. I don't like the glue. So it just became a thing of we have to take a break for a while. Oh, that's so funny. So another aside, which is related, my um, one of the first things I did when I started writing online was my daughter was five, and I thought it would be really cool for her to start interviewing people that made the stuff that she liked. So mm-hmm. she ended up talking to a whole bunch of different authors and artists. She actually talked to Norton Juster talking about Phantom oh, wow. Tollbooth. Wow. Um, but uh, one of the, the the coolest things we got to do was I set up an interview for her. We were visiting Legoland in, um, in Florida and she got to talk to one of the master builders there. She actually talked to two oh, master wow. builders. Wow. Um, but the one in Florida was really cool because we got to go into like the workshop where they build. I don't know if you've ever been to Legoland. I have um, not. I have not. So they have like these full size statues made yeah. out of Lego and they have this, I think they call it mini land or something, but it's basically like the world's um, l- most famous landmarks built out of Lego or they have like Star Wars lands built out of Lego. Mm-hmm. And so this workshop is where they actually build all this stuff. And so it was just so cool to see like these huge structures built out of Lego. And then you, you walk through like the back rooms and it's just row after row it's like a library but with buckets of lego pieces wow you know it was like i was freaking out inside i was trying to maintain my calm and be like i'm the responsible adult <laughs> <laughs> but like i was like this dude has my dream job like it has so many people's dream jobs he just literally gets to sit down and play with lego and i know it's more than that but my god what a cool job that would be that is very cool question are you a star wars fan uh, yes okay so <laughs> I, yeah. I have the Lego Super Star Destroyer. Like, like that's the oh last, my god, that's the last big build I did. You know that thing's like five feet long. Yeah, how um, many pieces is that? About forty eight hundred, I believe. Jeez. Um, it's it's just on my bookshelf right now. And um, when we moved, the legs wouldn't stay on, so it's just flat on its belly on my bookshelf right now. But that's like my favorite thing in the world. Oh my god, how long did that take you to put together? 
about 40 hours. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. I have not attempted one of those massive ones, like that the Death Star or the Superstar Destroyer, or like that new Millennium Falcon they have that's oh, yeah, ridiculously yeah, yeah. big. Oh, I, I, I love the biggest sets. I just don't have, like I said, it just doesn't make sense for me to even attempt them until I'm somewhere um, more yeah. permanent. But I love those. Yeah, I do too. I mean, it doesn't make sense for me. My kids would destroy them. Mm-hmm. Um, they would pick them up and my son would try to fly that Millennium Falcon around the house <laughs> and then it would, you know, just be all over the place. But... Um, yeah, I wish they were a little bit cheaper. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, I actually bought my my Super Star Destroyer with the advance money from Endanger. Nice. So like, like my wife said, like every time I sold a book, I should buy myself one nice thing, and that was the the Endangered purchase. Well, I can't blame you for that because that it doesn't come nicer than that, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm curious though, Lamar, when we're gonna get the book about a young black boy who becomes a lego yes. master builder. i'm jotting down notes right now. <laughs> okay because i'm i'm ready for that just one. just remember yeah. to include us in the acknowledgements and we'll be fine we'll be fine absolutely absolutely <laughs> This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. Take care.